ladies and gentlemen. Evening. Welcome to you all. Please come and take your seats. We're about to make a start. Welcome to this special kick event. We're so pleased to see you here at Highfields Church. My name is Albert Godding. I'm the chairman of KIC and the national director for Evangelical Alliance Wales. It's our pleasure to welcome you and our special guest, our speaker this evening, Peter Williams. I'll say more about him in just a moment. But let me give you just a quick background in case you haven't been to a KIC event before. KIC might sound a bit strange, Cymru Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Very simply, it's a consortium of organisations working under the wing of the Alliance, including Bible Society and CARE and UCCF and Highfields Church. And together, our passion is to take right around the nation events like this where we can explore the Bible together. We can explore its message and how we can use it in mission in 21st century Wales and even beyond, maybe even in England as well. It's possible for that to happen. Seriously, it's a, a, an attempt to look at the Bible and how we can increase our faith and confidence in God's word to us in this initiative. So very pleased to see you here. Well, Peter is a Christian philosopher. He lives in Southampton. He's part of Damaris. He's a, an author, a lecturer, an intellect. And he's going to be speaking tonight on why believe Jesus rose from death. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the Word of God together. It's going to be an inspiring time. You'll be enlightened, encouraged, and there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers, hopefully, halfway through the program, after an interval halfway through. So thank you for coming. And I'd love to begin this evening by taking a few moments for us to pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for opportunities like this when we can meet together at the end of a busy day and focus on you and upon your word. We pray tonight, Lord, that you'll help us to focus on what Peter has to share with us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to inspire and guide us, to open our hearts and minds to new things. And we pray for Peter, that you will give him that presence of mind, that peace in his own heart, that ability to communicate in the way that you want him to this evening. And may our conversation and browsing the literature and our refreshment together be times of building friendship as well. We commit this evening to you and our ultimate goal is to bring glory to you and to honour your name. And to see your kingdom extended throughout Wales and the United Kingdom and beyond. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. Well, Peter, let me welcome you. Come here, please. Let me shake you officially by the hand. This is how we do things, you know. Welcome, Peter. Good to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And God bless you as you share with us. Give me a few moments whilst I try and get the uh, PowerPoint. Well, there's my arrow. It's up there on the other screen. 
doesn't want to do this, does it? It's uh, coming too long. Let's try that. See, have you tried turning it off and on again? Yes, it likes that. Well, it's lovely to be back here uh, in Cardiff. I did my undergraduate studies in Cardiff many moons ago and uh, discovered philosophy at that stage after initially uh, signing on to do a degree in English language, English literature and uh, music. I took philosophy as my subsidiary humanities course uh, during my first year and uh, ended up graduating with a single honours degree in philosophy and carrying that on through a number of universities thereafter. And you might think it's a little strange to invite a philosopher to come and speak on the subject of why I believe Jesus rose from the death because that would seem to be primarily a historical question. Uh, why haven't we got an ancient historian up here? Um, that's not an historian who has really long grey hair, by the way. That's a historian who specialises in the ancient world. Let's make that clear. Well, I have actually written uh, and published on the subject of the historical Jesus uh, and spent uh, a good deal of of my energies in doing research in this area. Uh, But I frame it from the perspective of a philosopher. And I'll try and bring some of that framing uh, to our examination of this question this evening. Although in the talk section, I will actually focus primarily on the historical issues hopefully in such a way that that will clear the ground for our discussion later on, perhaps focusing more on some of the, uh, the philosophical issues, some of the issues of, uh, of meaning, uh, of uh, import, of um, questions about uh, miracles, will obviously come into this as well. So, why believe that Jesus rose from death? The only good answer, of course, is because you sincerely think that that's true. It's the only good reason for believing anything. Which leaves the automatic question, come back, why believe that's true? Why sincerely think that that's true? And I think that a number of different answers could be given to that question uh, at a number of different uh, academic levels some more robust than others. But let me model uh, this evening uh, one uh, uh, historical kind of approach to this. Now, looking at the, the Bible this evening, I, as a Christian, do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but I'm not going to treat or approach the biblical text as the Word of God this evening. I'm simply going to approach it as an ancient historical collection of documents. Because we live in an age that is full, unfortunately, of populist voices of deeply ignorant scepticism. I hold up two prime examples here on the screen of Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss, uh, both members of the so-called New atheism. And as Dawkins says there, the evidence, he thinks, that Jesus rose from the dead is zero. 
He says, accounts of Jesus' resurrection are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. In other words, it's just a made-up story. Lawrence Krauss agrees. He says, the point about the resurrection is that there's no evidence of it. And of course, the new atheists are particularly notorious for trying to redefine the word faith so that it is synonymous with blind faith, with believing things for no reason, or indeed in the teeth of evidence against the truth of what you're believing. Well, as a Christian and as a philosopher, I am opposed to blind faith. And if there's one uh, thing I want to kind of clear out of our way this evening, it is this neo-atheist perception that belief in Jesus, particularly the resurrection of Jesus, is something that requires blind faith because there is no evidence. The Jewish New Testament scholar, Dr. Giza Vermez, a very famous New Testament scholar who died only a couple of years ago, said this in his book on the resurrection. The idea of the resurrection of the dead was a latecomer in Jewish thought. And it occupied only a small area of the broad religious canvas of late Second Temple Judaism. That's Judaism of the time of the the temple uh, of Jesus' day that had only been recently completed uh, under Herod the Great. The New Testament completely altered the vista, changed the perspective. In it, the individual resurrection of one Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, predominates. And it's set in time and space and integrated into history. The situation is profoundly perplexing, says Vermes. And the historian must come to grips with this puzzle. Why did the first Jewish followers of Jesus suddenly start proclaiming the in-history resurrection of one man before the resurrection at the end of history before the last judgment that some Jews of the time believed in. Well, one approach to this question is to think about establishing our data set, if you like, uh, using some good, reliable historical criteria to establish a set of data that needs explaining, and then to move on to thinking about finding the best explanation for our data set, again, in terms of some criteria of explanation that we think will guide our thinking. But there's also uh, preconditions that people bring to the table, to the discussion. Background beliefs, if you like. Beliefs about the nature of reality, the nature of knowledge and so on that different people will bring to the table, to the discussion, that will shape their reception of 
arguments about the data and arguments about explaining the data. For agnostic Bart Ehrman, who's well known as a rather sceptical New Testament scholar, uh, in a debate with uh, Bill Craig, a Christian apologist, he said that the reason that the resurrection makes sense to Bill is because he's a believer in God. And so, of course, God can act in the world and do a miracle like the resurrection. Why not? Well, that presupposes a belief in God. Well, actually, I would say it presupposes a belief in God, theism, or agnosticism, because you're, if you're agnostic, you're not ruling out God, and so you can't rule out miracles, or indeed, even a non-dogmatic form of atheism that says, yeah, I think atheism is, is true, but I'm open to being persuaded away from that view by sufficient evidence. <laughs> so theism or agnosticism or non-dogmatic atheism will leave open the door to a belief in resurrection. And know what Ehrman concedes here. He concedes that belief in Jesus' resurrection certainly makes sense if you already believe in God. And that that actually doesn't go far enough. That agnostics and non-dogmatic atheists can also at least admit the possibility of God acting in the world and thus the possibility of Jesus rising from the dead. As long-time atheist turned theist a number of years before his death, Anthony Flew said, certainly, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely. So if you're approaching this question as an atheist, it's probably going to take a lot more evidence to convince you than if you're approaching the same set of data as someone who already believes in a God, but you're, not just, you're just not sure whether or not Christianity is the revelation of God or not. With that background in mind, let's think about some uh, data establishment. Establishing data using some good criteria. I don't have time this evening to go into all of the kind of criteria that an ancient historian would use, but let's look at a handful of particularly important ones. And this is really a matter of common sense. Um, looking historically, you want early sources rather than late sources of information about something that happens in history. The earlier, the better. Um, you would prefer to have eyewitness sources rather than second or third hand sources of information. It would be good to have multiple sources of information telling you the same thing, particularly multiple and independent of one another sources of information. And finally, it would be good to have um, embarrassing sources, what uh, historians call the criteria of embarrassment, that people don't tend to, to give information that puts themselves in a bad light unless that's because, just because they're simply being honest. Now, using these uh, positive historical criteria 
to validate specific bits of historical data is, of course, compatible with thinking that the sources containing those bits of data, those claims, are generally speaking unreliable as as historical sources. Now, the greater application these kind of criteria find to your sources, the more it's going to push you in the direction of thinking that those sources are generally reliable. But you don't have to start with the assumption that the New Testament sources we'll be looking at are even generally reliable. I think a good case can be made for that, but we're kind of sidestepping that whole issue by taking this approach of using particular criteria whereby we can say if bits of information in our sources pass these criteria, then at least those bits of information are to be relied on. So let's apply these criteria. Here's a chart showing the approximate datings of the letters that are contained in the New Testament. You see this uh, blue line on the left here is uh, the crucifixion, dated at AD 33. And then the bars end at the point where we think probably the letters were written uh, between about 48 and the end of the first century. So consider something like the letter to the Galatians. It's just 16 years post-crucifixion. And there, the writer talks about being crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. And also mentions Jesus Christ, or Messiah. It's the Greek translation of the the Hebrew. Jesus Christ and God the Father, kind of mentioned in the same breath. Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Or, going just a little bit later on in time, the letters to the Corinthian church. Specifically, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, dated to about 54 AD. Now, interestingly, in that letter... Paul quotes from an early church creed. So although 1 Corinthians is later than Galatians, he's actually quoting a source that, as I'll show you, predates Galatians. So it's a later letter, but it gives us access to an earlier source. And this is a a theme that we'll come back to. And he notes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 9, That what I received, I, Paul, received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he's quoting from this creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is, the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, and then he seems to to introduce a sort of side thought, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, I died. Um, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds, and last of all, he appeared to me also, and so on. 
So Jesus is crucified in AD 33. 1 Corinthians is written in AD 54. But Paul is there reiterating teaching that he had previously passed on to the church. Presumably when he first went there, founded it in about AD 50, which is 17 years post-crucifixion. And the majority of scholars in this area think that Paul probably received this creed that he quotes in Jerusalem from Peter and James in about AD 36, by which time the Jerusalem church had already formulated and started using this material as a formal creed. And here's a selection of quotations from scholars making the point that this is just the received view in the field. Now, so um, atheist Gerd Ludemann says the elements in the tradition in the Corinthians Creed are to be dated not later than three years after the death of Jesus. Atheist historian Michael Golder believes that the testimony goes back at least to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple of years after the crucifixion. James Dunn says the tradition we can be entirely confident was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. It goes back to the oldest phase of all in the history of primitive Christianity, says Wilkins. Raymond says that it can, uh, you can think of it as being based on early Palestinian eyewitness testimony. And the Jewish scholar, Pinchas Lapid, agrees that we may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. And of course, talking about eyewitness testimony, we had it at the end uh, in what I quoted from Corinthians there, he also appeared to me, says Paul. He is an eyewitness himself. Writing in circa 54, Paul writes that he is himself an eyewitness and we also get that in uh, later on in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 15, 8, Galatians 1, 13 to 7, uh, 17, about 48, 49 AD. Luke also reports the same events in the book of Acts. And this claim is at least given the stamp of sincerity, which is not the same thing as truth, but it's nonetheless important, sincerity by the fact that Paul was willing to be martyred for this claim. As a then atheistic Anthony Flew observed, the evidence of Paul is certainly important and strong because he had been an active opponent. I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence that there is. Let us mention the Gospels for the first time. Timothy Paul Jones notes that the best evidence we have suggests that the sources of the four Gospels were a tax collector named Matthew, Simon Peter's translator Mark, the physician Luke, friend of Paul, and a fisherman named John. And Matthew and John are disciples of Jesus. They're eyewitnesses. Now, as Mark D. Robert puts it, writing very carefully, he says, in recent years, many have come to believe that the first and fourth Gospels, Matthew and John, reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus. 
But they, their memory and their authority stand behind the Gospels that bear their names. Let me recommend to you briefly Richard Bockham's recent magnum opus, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where he particularly goes into uh, literary signals within the texts that they're quoting eyewitnesses uh, within a culture where the language doesn't have quotation marks. Uh, It's interesting stuff. And he argues that the Gospels embody the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Not, of course, without editing and interpretation, but in a way that's substantially faithful to how the eyewitnesses themselves told it. The New Testament Gospels, if you compare them to other works of ancient history, uh, I've got a bar chart that will simplify this graph for you in a moment, don't worry about it too much. Um, Most scholars would accept datings of the four canonical Gospels ranging between the 60s and the 90s of the first century. Uh, I would argue, uh, and have argued uh, in my book Understanding Jesus, that the Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were probably published within 30 years of the crucifixion, with Mark being the earliest at about 49, Luke about 61, Matthew about 63, and then John's Gospel arriving on the scene by about AD 90-ish, but perhaps based on an earlier draft, a first draft that uh, comes from before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But if you line up the data about the the four Gospels and think of them in terms of what what dating are the events that are being reported? When is this report about those events being written? How long after the event is the source written down? And what's the kind of lapse between the the events being talked about and the, the writing of those reports? You break it down into the the average uh, lapse in the right-hand column there and put it in a bar chart uh, for ease of comprehension. So um, Plutarch is a bit of an outrider. You might want to discount him because uh, the average gap between what he's writing about uh, and when they actually happened is over 300 years. But look where texts like Mark, Luke, Matthew, John come. It's well within the norm for ancient history. Indeed, it's good for ancient history. There's only two texts there that beat Mark in terms of this measure. And if you were to use the standard gospel datings, the average gap would fall within that bar on the chart there. And you see it's still good within terms of ancient history. I say we come back to this thing of of sources. It's not so much the date at which a particular text is published that tells you everything you need to know, because that text may be based upon earlier information, may quote earlier sources, and so on. And indeed, it's generally thought by scholars that the four New Testament Gospels incorporate five to six independent sources of information that the the writers drew upon. Um, 
So, uh, there is Q, which is material common to the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. If you read Luke and Matthew side by side, you'll see that large portions are practically identical. Uh, That's uh, called Q, uh, from a German word meaning source. Uh, There's material uh, unique to Luke, called L, and uh, Matthew called M. Uh, It's thought that Mark uses a pre-Mark and passion source. When you get to the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, you're actually reading a source that predates Mark. And John is sometimes thought to incorporate a source that talked about the miracles of Jesus. So if you were to then think in terms of the sources that end up being put into the Gospels and then work out the average gap between events and report, that would be the bar where the average gap would fall for the four Gospels. Sources that are incorporated in there. In other words, it's practically smack back on top of the events. And we have multiple sources the more witnesses, the, the better, obviously. And we have multiple sources. Um, the outline of Jesus' death and resurrection can be established from the multiple, and indeed not just multiple, but independent of one another, and very early testimonies of, for example, the early creed in 1 Corinthians that we looked at, the pre and passion source, Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts, and an early sermon by Paul that's recorded uh, later on in Acts, in Acts 13. Now, talking about the speeches in the book of Acts, uh, noted New Testament scholar James Dunn comments that Luke has sought out much earlier material and has incorporated it into the brief formalised expositions which he attributes to Peter, Stephen, Paul, etc. In other words... Those speeches in Acts are based upon earlier sources. They're not verbatim transcripts of what happened at the time, but they're formalised sort of paraphrases, if you like, condensations to fit uh, into his scroll length, etc., of what happened at the time from earlier sources. Bar Ehrman concurs. He says the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are, in many instances, based on oral traditions. And these speeches incorporate materials from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. So it's not so much the date of Luke that matters, but the fact that Luke gives us access to these very early sources. And if you line up Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15... Mark 15 to 16, Acts 13, you get multiple early independent testimony to the general outline of the Passion story. That Christ died, put to death by nailing him to a cross, asked Pilate to have him crucified, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. We have multiple sources for these resurrection appearances. Now, in this chart here, I've put references to Mark chapter 16 and 9 
onwards in brackets because that text doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. So I'm not relying upon the uh, later added ending of Mark. But note that Mark 16 verse 7, which is in all of the earliest manuscripts, clearly implies at least one group resurrection appearance. Indeed, Jesus was reportedly seen on at least, at least ten different occasions. In eight of those occasions, it's also reported that people heard and or talked with, conversed with, a resurrected Jesus. On at least two occasions, it's reported that people touched the resurrected Jesus. At least seven reports concern appearances to groups of people. Indeed, we've multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances of the resurrected Jesus. As Bill Craig puts it, the appearances to Peter is independently attested by Paul and Luke. The appearances to the twelve by Paul, Luke and John. The appearances to the women disciples by Matthew and John. And the appearances to the disciples in Galilee by Mark and John. He has given its early date, as well as Paul's personal acquaintance with the people involved... The list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 surely guarantees that such appearances occurred. We've also multiple sources for something like the early tomb. Klaus Berger notes that the reports about the early tomb are related by all four Gospels and other writings of early Christianity in a form independent of one another. The criterion of embarrassment is a particularly interesting one. It refers to sayings or, or deeds that aren't, aren't easily explained away as inauthentic creations of the early church, uh, simply because there, there are aspects about them that would have been embarrassing to the early church. As Graham Stanton says, traditions that would have been an embarrassment to followers of Jesus in the post-Easter period are unlikely to have been invented by them. Well, look at this piece of graffiti from the Palatine Hill in Rome. It's been dated to about 200 AD. It's called the Alexaminos Graffito. I'm presuming that graffito is Latin for graffiti. You can see, hopefully, a figure on a cross with a donkey's head. There's the cross, here he is, outstretched arms on a donkey's, donkey's head on top of him. Below him, looking up at him, another figure of a hand out raised up. And the text here says, Alexaminos worships his God. Well, some translate it, Alexaminos, worship your God. In other words, this guy has got himself crucified. He has made an ass of himself. But who has made more of an ass of himself? Ha! Alexaminos! Because he worships a crucified guy. That's ludicrous. That is laughable. In 
It is absurd, says Graham Veal, to suppose that any group in that culture would have pretended that their leader had been crucified. Bar Ehrman says, it is highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. But what about the empty tomb? As Vermez says, female witnesses had no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. They were not considered to be reliable witnesses. If the empty tomb story had been manufactured by the primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, says Vermez. In other words, the stories would have men discovering the empty tomb, not women. So as Craig says, the fact that it is women who are reported in the Gospels rather than men as the the first and chief witnesses to the empty tomb is best explained by the historical facticity of the narratives that they just had to be honest and say, okay, this is a bit embarrassing, but yeah, it was women that discovered it. That was a socially awkward thing for them to proclaim in their cultural context. Indeed, resurrection appearances, we've independent testimony that the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus were women. Look at Matthew 28, 1 to 10, and John 20, 11 to 18. Very socially embarrassing in their culture. So I would suggest that there are four historical facts that are established by the use of multiple criteria of authenticity. That we have multiple early, independent, embarrassing, and eyewitness sources that all show that Jesus died on a cross, that his dead body was buried in a tomb, that that tomb was later found to be empty and that thereafter various individuals and groups of people sincerely believed that a resurrected Jesus interacted with them. And indeed, these four facts are just part and parcel of the scholarly consensus across the scholarly spectrum today. Whether you're talking about Christian New Testament scholars and ancient historians or non-Christian. Theists or atheists. Christians or agnostics. Jews or Gentiles. This is recognised. Charles Foster says, the overwhelming conclusion of the mainstream literature, even that written by virulent opponents of Christianity, is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. Just one sidebar here. I think it's interesting to note John's report of uh, when he talks about the, the spear being thrust into the side of Jesus and blood and water came out in John 19.34. That's an eyewitness report from John. Um, Dr. Truman Davis writes that although John, in that culture, their medical knowledge 
wouldn't have allowed him to know the significance of that observation. Um, But he says it's conclusive post-mortem evidence that Christ died of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium, the separation of blood and serum. Uh, It's not just a sort of made-up symbol of something like the blood and the need for baptism. Um, it would seem to chime with modern medical knowledge uh, that is applicable to what might well happen to someone who's being crucified. Jesus' body was buried in a tomb. As the atheist, uh, Gerd Ludman says, Jesus was obviously buried. There is the tradition of the burial in Paul. It's a very old tradition, and it's likely to be historical. The tomb was found empty. Most experts, says John Dixon, accept that Jesus' tomb was empty within days of burial. Craig Evans says, the consensus of scholarship affirms the historicity of the empty tomb of Jesus. It is today widely recognized that the empty tomb of Jesus is a simple historical fact. And when it comes to even the appearances, and by using that term, I'm, I'm not prejudging whether these are genuine Appearances of a genuinely resurrected Jesus or not. That's, that's not what's being talked about here at this stage. But the fact that there are apparent appearances, that people have experiences that they sincerely took to be interactions with a resurrected Jesus. William Craig says that most New Testament critics are prepared to admit that the disciples did see appearances of Jesus. Jonathan Kendall puts it extremely well when he says that numerous individuals, including Jesus' closest disciples, had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those that are most sceptical of Christianity and of the resurrection itself. Summing up the consensus of scholarship, N.T. Writer, another eminent uh, British writer on this subject, says this, historical investigation, purely historical investigation, brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone they were convinced Was this same Jesus bodily alive, though in a new transformed fashion? Nothing I've said about that historical evidence is contentious within academia, at least within the guild of academia that is conversant with historical evidence in this matter. Neither is it particularly controversial to say that there is no accepted, generally accepted, naturalistic explanation for that data. Uh, philosopher Stephen T. Davis says, no one who denies that Jesus was raised from the dead has yet been able to account adequately for these widely accepted facts. Or as Giza Vermes says in his book on the resurrection, he looks at the end of that book at six different ways in which people have tried to explain away this data. And he says, all in all, none of the six suggested theories stands up to stringent scrutiny. 
Now, Vermes doesn't believe in the resurrection. But he will say, I don't know what happened. Anthony flew when he was still an atheist. Uh, said, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. But he was still an atheist. You know. I think this is where they, the role, as I mentioned at the beginning, of one's background beliefs starts to be seen heavily. He would just say, I don't know what happened, but of course it couldn't have been a miracle like Jesus actually rising from the dead, because for there to be a miracle, there'd have to be a God, and I, I'm really convinced that there isn't a God. Someone in Flew's kind of position would end up, essentially, weighing up in the balance pan their reasons for thinking there's no God against evidence, including the evidence for the resurrection. Because if the resurrection happened, you know, that's a miracle, and that would mean there's a God. So... So how do we explain the data? We think in terms of something like um, Occam's razor, which might be expressed, you know, pick the simplest adequate explanation. Of course, Jesus rising from the dead miraculously is an adequate explanation for our data. If Jesus rose from the dead, the data that we've established is only to be expected. It becomes very likely. So it implies the resurrection. And it's a relatively simple explanation. You just have to have Jesus rising from the dead, and then that explains all of the, the data that we have. Um, of course, it seems to imply that there's God, which is a, an additional thing to believe. Um, but that sort of, again, depends upon, did you already believe in a God when you came to this data? And now the, the data for the resurrection is kind of fine-tuning your belief in what kind of God, which God, what exactly has he done, if anything, in history? Or is part of that evidence also feeding into your whole thinking about, is there even a God? So the resurrection of Jesus, the miraculous resurrection of Jesus from the dead, would be a, an adequate explanation. There is a, admittedly no consensus about an alternative, naturalistic, non-miraculous explanation. Rob Bowman says something interesting here. He says, um, I've put it next to the, our Alex Aminos graffito as well to hammer this point home. It would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. Something like his rising from the dead would certainly fit the bill. The question is not only that it's embarrassing to say that your Messiah was crucified, so you probably didn't make up the fact that he was, he was crucified, but why have you, as it were, in that culture, if you're one of the disciples of Jesus and you've just seen him crucified and you thought, oh, I thought he was the Messiah and he was going to kick out the Romans and it was all going to be great, but now they've killed him. 
we were wrong. Oh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, we, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. You know, but now all our hopes and dreams have been smashed. Oh, like many another messianic movement in the time. Why did this messianic movement that proclaimed that their Messiah had been crucified keep going in that cultural context so the best explanation of the historical facts one might well think especially if one approaches the data not dogmatically committed to atheism the impossibility of, of miracles that thinking of it in terms of what's the best explanation which explanation has the best explanatory power scope of explanation explaining all the data simplicity of explanation etc one might well think that the answer to that is that Jesus rose from the dead we'll have time in our question period after the coffee break to go into questions if you want to follow up more Uh, There are some copies of my book, Understanding Jesus, there at the back, which has a a chapter on the the resurrection, Um, but also puts that into the context, as I did at the beginning here, of what beliefs you're bringing to the table and how that affects what you make of the data. And um, also the fact that there are, I think, four other arguments for the Christian view of Jesus that, that accumulate, that even if you you come with a relatively sceptical frame of mind that when you start looking seriously at the historical data and the arguments that can be mounted from them will start sucking away at that scepticism and gradually building into, I think, uh, a reasonable case for sincerely believing that the Christian view of Jesus is true. And what better reason to believe something could there be? Thank you very much. Thank you.